Welcome into episode 78 of the Landscape Photography Show, and in this episode, we're talking with photographer Dave Morrow, and Dave contacted me, and I was excited that he did because I've been following Dave for quite some time before YouTube became the cool place, I feel like, for a lot of landscape photographers to share their adventures. Dave was doing great stuff on there and really taught me a lot about photography, he taught me about business, And I was excited to talk to him about why he decided to jump to photography as a profession and why he decided to continue that journey and what motivates him to continue that journey as well. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Dave Morrow. Uh, Dave, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, and kind of putting your voice out there because I've been following on YouTube for quite some time, even before I started doing any videos myself and before YouTube kind of became the place for landscape photographers to gravitate to, to show their behind the scenes adventures and, and kind of the photos that they produce. Uh, so thank you for doing that for so many years. And what I like to do when people come on and especially to give me a background on who you are, why don't you give me an overview and everybody listening about how you got started and what led you to where you are right now? Sure. No problem. Well, first off, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate you sharing your platform to do this. should be fun. For sure. So I got into photography about 14 years ago now. So I live out in near Seattle, Washington, a little bit north, up near the North Cascades in Washington State. And I first came out here because I got recruited to do aerospace engineering for Boeing. And Seattle is like their big headquarters in Washington. It's where they build all the jumbo jets that everybody flies on to all their photography trips. So I came out here and I started doing that. And I saw the mountains out here and all the really wild landscapes. And I was like, man, I got to go out and explore that stuff. So slowly I started getting into hiking and I started to just do some trips by foot out into the wilderness. Started with really small trips at first, like one night, two night backpacking and camping trips. And At that point, I was like, man, it would be cool to take some photos of this stuff. So I got a really basic camera. I think I had like a Canon Rebel or something, which is a good beginner camera. Um, Started taking photos with that. They looked horrible. And then this was the point when like Flickr and some of the online stuff was starting to come out. So like you could share your photos. And then Facebook started to come around around that same time. So I just made a website and started throwing my horrible photos up on the internet. And for some reason, some people liked those photos. And as I progressed, they would say, well, how do I do it? So I started just writing really bad website pages and kind of sharing people my techniques. And then I noticed that a lot of people like to read this stuff. So I started refining the teaching process as I refined my own learning process. Because by writing, I could really look at the step-by-step techniques I was using out in the field. And when I wrote them down, I would see all the mistakes that I was making. So by doing this and just constantly just kind of looking at my process and what I wasn't doing right, I could refine it and write it out. And then it evolved to the point where lots of people were visiting my website. So 
maybe five years in, I started to do workshops. And from there, I started to like have online courses and then I started to make YouTube videos and it kind of just progressed itself. I didn't really have a game plan to start with. I never really have a game plan now. And I've kind of moved out of doing a lot of workshops into teaching online more, recording trips out in the wilderness and trying to show people that you don't always just have to do photography from like hot spots or places where everybody go. I mean, that's fine to do that, but there's also places you can go explore where you will see no one else and you can find compositions and really challenge yourself as part of being in the wilderness, surviving, designing trips where you hike, you're spending eight to 10 days out there. And that's what really turned me on is the constant challenge. So now my goal is to teach people the process of photography as the framework, but then also teach them how to go out backpacking, how to hike and everything else that kind of goes into the wilderness photography mindset and even the creator's mindset. So that's a short background. Um, Hopefully that helped to fill in a little bit of what I'm up to out here. And then I'm always just changing that and progressing and trying to push myself to get better and then teaching it back to everybody else. And what I find to be a clear and concise manner that I'm always trying to improve upon. So what does a day in the life of an aerospace engineer look like? Well, there's all different days in the life. It's like, um, it would be like saying, what's the day in the life of a computer scientist look like? It kind of depends what you're working on. What I was doing was basically troubleshooting large scale repairs on airplanes. So I worked on the 777 jumbo jet, which is one of the biggest jet planes in the world. So if you fly from Seattle to Dubai or something, you'll probably fly on a 777 jumbo jet. So when they're building these things, they come down the assembly line and I was working in the area where they would join the forward part of the airplane to the wings to the back part of the airplane. And when you're that far down the fabrication process and there's a mistake made, meaning one of the parts gets damaged, a hole to drill in the airplane goes in the wrong spot or something like that, there's many different repairs, but you can't just take the whole airplane apart and then put a new part in and put it back together because it's just not logical to do when you're that far along in the fabrication process. So they have engineers that go out and look at this damage on the airplane. And my job was to design a repair that would fly with that airplane for the next 30 years that would ensure it was as safe as the original design of the airplane. So you can kind of think of these as like garage repairs. Like let's say you have damage to your car. So you go out and look at it and you're like, I'm going to design this repair and it's going to be safe. So I would write it out step by step on paper. I would run all the calculations as far as like all the physics and mechanics behind it to make sure it's safe. Then I would sign my name on it and it goes out to the shop floor where they build the airplane following my steps. So you're basically signing people's lives away for the next 30 years on your repair, but you're also learning to do very good visualization of a building process. So you have to have some creative thinking in your mind and then be able to translate that into step-by-step technical writing. And I think that's kind of what overlapped and helped me out a lot with what I do on my website and with photography now, because a lot of that is very technical too. And it's the same process for anything that's technical. You break it down to these small steps and the whole thing might seem overwhelming. But when you break it down to these small digestible steps, 
it's not overwhelming. You just follow the process and you get from start to finish. So that's an overview of what I did. And there's a lot of other people that do different things, but that was just one small uh, faction of the build process for aerospace. What was it like for you when you turned in your two weeks notice? Um, it was pretty scary. And it was also a really good feeling because ever since I started working, I worked at Boeing for like six years. And as I was doing that, I was saving all my money because I was like, I'm going to take off and try photography full time, no matter what, even if my business isn't making money. But at the same time, I was starting to scale my business up. So I was funding my business being my photography business with the money I was making at Boeing. And then when I wasn't at work, I was just practicing photography constantly and working on my business constantly. So eventually it got to the point where I made enough to live off of my photography business and it was getting close to matching my engineering salary. It wasn't quite there and I wasn't sure if it was going to work long-term. So it felt good because I was taking all of the trust that I had placed on a corporation and I was placing it on my own shoulders instead. And by doing that, I was saying, okay, you have trust in yourself to design your own life from now on and help people in a way that you think will really help them progress in photography. So it was kind of a whole mindset change of I'm now the top person that makes decisions in my life. And if I fail, that's all on me. And if I succeed, that's all on me. And my personality kind of fits with that. I'm not saying that it's the best choice for everybody to do, but I like to make calculated risks in my life that won't kill me and that have maybe infinite potential upside without much downside. And by that, I mean, if I had failed after I quit my job, the downside would be that I would have to go back and work at Boeing again. Not a big deal, not much lost. But the potential infinite upside is that if quitting my job to do landscape photography worked out, I would get to work on things that interest me every day. And I would constantly be accountable for being creative and for producing money for myself to take care of myself. And that would allow me to create at a higher level. So it felt really good. And it was also scary. Compare and contrast for me what your lifestyle looks like now versus what it looked like then. Nice. That's a good question, man. Um, so at Boeing, I would wake up and I would be thinking, man, some days it would be really fun and other days it would be repetitive, but I had to go in and work every day on a schedule and I hate schedules. And I also hate the fact that if I would go to work and do really well or fail, there wasn't really much difference. You might get a small raise if you do well. You might not get any raise if you fail, but there wasn't a whole lot on the line. So I didn't really feel like I didn't have this desire to succeed that much. But now that I wake up and dictate what I do every day, I have to make much more wise decisions. So as far as like breaking up how my life looks now, uh, eight, seven to eight months out of the year, I spend out backpacking and taking photos. So I will design trips on topographic maps that are ranging from five to 15 days in length 
where I'm packing all my food for the trip. Sometimes having food caches that I pick up food, but I'm out in the wilderness that whole time. And I don't really have a set plan or agenda. I'll pick some places that I might want to visit. Some might be on trail, some might be off trail. And I'll kind of just explore and see what happens out of that. And during that same time, I create videos, I create vlogs-ish kind of type things on my YouTube channel, uh, learning content. And then during the winter months, I come home. And for those three to four months in the winter, I just crank out a lot of work and I'll still do some trips. Like every month I'll do a week long trip, but I won't be out there all the time. And this is the time of year when I like to just work on my website, work on making a lot of videos. And then I also have a online school, which is dedicated to just teaching people landscape photography. So I create content for them every month and then they submit critiques. They have questions I answer. And then there's tons of courses they learn from. So I'm working as a teacher on that online school year round. So it kind of mixes my desire to adventure, but I also like doing analytical stuff as far as business and back home. And that's the best way I've found to kind of balance them back and forth off of each other. But a lot of times I still feel like I'm working. Like when you do something every day, even if you're backpacking and it seems awesome from an outsider's perspective, when you're doing it every day and you're putting a lot on your shoulders to get good images and explore places, you still have that pressure. So sometimes you get up and you're like, man, I don't want to do this today, but I try to just force through it. Cause once I start doing it, I really enjoy it. And I find the same thing to happen at home when I'm working on stuff, like say I'm writing a really long article on my website. Well, if I'm writing it for five days, a few days into it, I'm like, man, I don't feel like writing this article. So I just wake up and I'm like, okay, just start get 15 or 20 minutes done and you'll probably start liking it. So I kind of just force it now on days I don't feel like it, but I have the ability to dictate what I'm doing, which gives me a lot more motivation to work in general. It's interesting. You plan your trips out on uh, topographic maps because I did a lot of my um, degree in college in cartography and looking at maps. And, and I think that's really a lost art in photography right now, especially when you're planning out a trip. If somebody is going backpacking, you can sure upload or download, um, some GPS points on an app, but mm -hmm. I feel like a paper topographic map is really going to give you a good idea of elevation change, um, how does it help your photography going out? And, and maybe if somebody wants to take that approach up and have a physical map with them, what are some of the things that they need to learn initially to begin that process? Nice. That's a great question. That sounds like a really cool thing to learn in college as well. Um, it was, well, I'll say this. It was cool when I was learning it because I could pick my projects and I did all my projects around national parks and issues that I had with national parks and how to make them better. I got my full-time job though, uh, mapping out a city's utility system. And you can only look at so many videos of robots that go through sewer drains so many times before you're like, <laughs> this is literally going to kill me. That's hilarious, man. I kind of <laughs> got that same feeling when I was working at Boeing doing airplane stuff is like, it's cool at first, but after you see the same things on repetition, mm -hmm. everything kind of becomes mundane. Um, but as far as topographic maps, if people want to get into doing wilderness photography, 
or any simple kind of stuff as far as just like one or two night overnights and backpacking. Reading topographic maps is one of the essential things that you'll need to learn how to do. And it's really not that hard. There's probably a lot of good YouTube videos on it. I'm working on creating a series right now in my school that lays out my entire trip planning process. But topographic maps in general, it's really nice to be able to look on your computer screen and look at them. And that has some advantages. So anybody that's listening that wants to try it out, I would recommend Gaia, G-A-I-A, GPS. And you can probably try one of their free trials or something. But even the uh, full-blown plan is well worth it because it shows you all the hiking trails at all the parks. It shows you tons of different cool stuff you can get into. And it's great for brainstorming places you might go on a photography trip to. And it doesn't even matter if you don't go out on backpacking trips yet. They can be great for day hikes and just getting to places that people aren't at all the time. So great for exploring. Um, and then you have paper maps. So I generally do all of my planning on that Gaia GPS app along with Google Earth. And I kind of just bounce them off of each other to get good ideas. And then on the trips, I always take a paper or hard copy map. Um, Nat Geo makes some really good maps that are weatherproof. And the nice thing about hard copy and paper maps is that when you're out on trips, it, it allows you to kind of get a lot more excited for the trip because you can lay the map out and you're going to be like, oh man, I'm going to hike into this area tomorrow or that area. And it's a lot better visualization of the actual landscape than you would get on the computer planning apps. But both kind of work really well off of each other. Um, so anybody that wants to get into like beginner level backpacking for landscape photography, what I would recommend first is just find a friend that wants to do it with you. And you guys can kind of work as a team and that will really increase the safety of the situation because I go out on all my trips solo, but I wouldn't recommend that until you have some serious first aid training and you've spent a good bit of time in the wilderness. But at first having a friend to go out and do it with you is great because you guys can also learn how to read topographic maps together and just go on YouTube and type in how to read a topographic map, get a compass, get a map that's paper or physical for somewhere near you. And it doesn't have to be a crazy trip. Just start out with a one night trip. And as you're on the trip, plan before the trip on Gaia GPS, get a little route going. And then you can also use the Gaia GPS app on your phone. And that'll help you to navigate when you get out in the field. So the goal here is do a trip where there's a lot of people at first and not maybe a lot, but it's semi-popular. So if something wrong happens, you have the ability to get out of there. It's also good to take like a GPS navigation beacon, meaning you can push a button and hopefully a search and rescue team will come. It's not always a guarantee. The Garmin InReach Mini can be great for that. And just do a trip where you're not going to get into serious trouble. Now, if you're doubting yourself or you would like some instruction, you could go to like REI or something like that. REI has classes where they'll take people out for a one or two night backpack. So it kind of depends on your own mentality of how you get into it. But once you get your feet wet with it, you can really start to scale up the trips. And what I like a lot about it is that instead of going online and being like, well, where's a cool spot to take photos in Washington State or Utah or Wyoming? You just go on Gaia GPS, you look at the map and you're used to knowing how topographic maps work. So you can look at it and kind of visualize the landscape you'll be in. And then you can just design your own trip and go off of that. And the freedom of being out there for 10 or 15 days by yourself, where all your food and your gear and your camera is being carried on your back and all the responsibility of survival 
is on your shoulders is a feeling that I don't think it's possible to get anymore except in that scenario. And this was the feeling that our brains and our bodies and our minds evolved out of before we had civilization. So there's something evolutionary in there that comes out when you're out on these trips by yourself. That's just a feeling that I, it's impossible to describe, but it's a feeling of freedom and you're also nervous and you're also really joyful at the same time. And that mix of survival and just happiness is awesome. I would recommend it to anybody that's interested in it, but just start out slowly and slowly work your way into it. So you're never jumping off a cliff and doing something that's too dangerous because the goal is to do it for a long-term period of time and not get injured to the point where you're not going to do it anymore. So hopefully that helps. Best freeze-dried food to take with you is what? Um, well, some of those mountain houses are pretty good, man. I make all my own food. Um, really? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're pushing trips really long or even a few days, think about what would happen if you ate McDonald's every day versus eating like really good grains every day and good nutrients like rice and proteins and stuff like that. The difference in energy that you're going to feel is immense. So mountain house, which are like freeze dried meals, these are like McDonald's. But if you make a really well-rounded meal yourself, you can kind of batch process it and it you can basically eat the good stuff you eat at home out in the trail. So I make a bunch of veggies. I make a bunch of rice, quinoa and mushrooms and a bunch of other good stuff. And I just dehydrate it. You can get industrial size dehydrators. So in a weekend, I can crank out enough food for three months of backpacking. And then I just have it and it's all really good food. So when you're eating it every day, you don't ever feel like you're at a a loss for nutrients or energy and your ability to put in big miles, say like 20 or 30 mile days, if you need to, is fine. You don't lose that energy over the trip. Another thing that's super helpful is taking greens powder. So greens powder is just like basically all your green nutrients for the day packed into a little scoop of powder. You just mix it with some water and then taking some good multivitamins that will kind of hedge your bets on running low on nutrients. But if you take that stuff, you can essentially stay out there as long as you want or as long as you can carry food for the trip on. And you don't feel any different from back home because it's all good food. Mountain houses are good to start with though. So don't feel like you have to start making your own food right away. Just start with some mountain house meals, get a jet boil and go out and gun it. I'm like a big kitchen guy. So the second you said industrial, um, what what is it? Dehydration? Yeah. Uh, how much does that cost? You can get different levels of them. Um, so they're priced on the number of racks. So the rack is just where you put, you basically cut up vegetables, you cook rice, you cook quinoa, and then you put it on these little trays or racks. If you get a big one with like 12 racks, it's like 350 bucks. Um, I can give you the brands I use if you want to put them in the show notes or whatever, or we can talk after the podcast if yeah, you want absolutely. that info. Um, and the, the reason you want more racks is because if it takes like 12 to 15 hours to dehydrate this stuff. So if you're doing enough for some large trips over the summer, if you get a small dehydrator, it'll just take you days on end. Um, but you could get like a $100 one as well that will do okay but it's not industrial grade. This is fascinating. My wife's going to be furious because this is going to be like my new obsession. Dude, you can make some other good stuff too. Um, my buddy Iron, who taught me a lot about backpacking, you guys can check out uh, his website. It's Iron Taz, 
I-R-O-N-T-A-Z-Z.com. He's got a lot of backpacking tips if you guys are interested, but he always makes, um, you, you can make, you basically take a bunch of berries and like other fruits and stuff and you can make like a, I don't, it's like a little chewy gummy thing. You basically dehydrate a bunch of fruits. So he eats those all the time. It's huh. like, I'm trying to think what these things are called. Um, back, back in the day when you're a kid, they would, it's not fruit, but it's like this really thin strip of like gummy material that tastes like fruit. Yeah. You can make fruit those. Roll up. Yeah. Fruit roll up. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> you can make these naturally like with good fruits and veg or good fruits, I should say. And he makes those all the time for backpacking because when you're putting in long days, sugar's not a bad thing if you're putting in long days because your body will just eat it right away. So it can be a really good boost. And he eats those all the time. Hey guys, I just wanted to pause real quick and talk about a very unique opportunity that you have right now to get 33% off of all of my courses for a limited time. That's courses on my website at davidjohnstonart.com. That's also courses on visualwilderness.com. If you just use the code David33 during checkout, you can get 33% off any of my courses that are gonna help you with post-processing techniques, even in-field techniques like in panorama photography. You can also hear my daughter clapping in the background. So go to davidjohnstonart.com or visualwilderness.com and get 33% off for a limited time. Pretty easy. Improve your photography, save some cash. It's a win-win. Let's get back to our talk with Dave. I think when you say, you know, you're on the mountain, you're on the trails backpacking seven, eight months out of every single year, but then you're also, you know, running an online business. The, the easy question for me to ask here is how, because you have to have that internet connection and you have to be able to keep everything charged to run your business as well. Yeah. Great question. Um, so there are ways to figure out that you can do this. And here's a few. So number one, it's always good, in my opinion, like I, I first look at the lifestyle that I would like to live. And then I look at how I can help people learn if they want to live this lifestyle as well, or if they want to learn photography or backpacking. Because the nice thing about the internet is that if you like something, there's going to be a lot of other people that like it too. Because each of us is not that unique that we like this thing that nobody else likes. So if you like doing something, and you can help other people learn it. Even if you are, say, only an intermediate skill level, you can teach everybody that is a beginner skill level how to do what you're currently doing. So I designed my life and my business to be all passive income streams, meaning I constantly create content and then I put it up on YouTube on schedules. I put it up on my website on schedules, but I'm basically designing and building knowledge repositories that are all digital. So somebody could sign up for my landscape photography school. They could watch my YouTube videos. They could read my blog post and they're doing things where they're learning from me, but I don't really have to be there at the moment. So as so long as I can get internet every two weeks to answer some emails or help people out, then that's plenty for what I'm doing. But you're also going to have to come down to the fact that you will lose out on a lot of opportunities so you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons of this. Like if somebody emails me and says, well, I'd like you to do this thing with me and I'll pay you for this project or something. I just don't do any freelance stuff because 
I'm not going to be able to respond to that person and give them a good quality experience. So I turn down a lot of stuff because I miss emails for two weeks. I also don't do things where I'm working on projects for companies or I'm licensing images because there's a lot of back and forth through email and internet. And I just don't want that to be a part of my life. And I also don't want to do like a medium grade job at those things. And I know I can't do my best when I'm always out. So I think the ability to say no to a lot of stuff and just concentrate on giving people the best experience in a way that you can actually do it very well is kind of how I look at it. Um, The other thing that I like to keep in mind for that stuff is let's say you're a creator or a photographer and you would like to quit your job and do photography full time. Some people want to do that. Some don't. Both are just fine, you know, but let's say you want to do it. A lot of people think you need millions of people to watch your videos or millions of fans or lots of likes on your Facebook page. But if you break it down, let's say you're just a guy and you have very minimal living needs. If you have a thousand fans that will buy every single thing you sell, all you need to do is have each of those thousand true fans buy $100 product from you a year and you now make $100,000. Now you could scale that up or down. You could say, well, if you sell a $200 product, you only need 500 true fans. And this guy named Kevin Kelly has this awesome blog post on this. It's called 1000 True Fans. So what I try to do is I try to make experiences for people that are world-class for learning, but I don't try to concentrate on the masses. I try to concentrate on people that really wanna learn what I'm up to, and then I can give them the best experience possible. And by doing that, I don't have to constantly worry about being connected to the internet because these people trust me and they know that I have their best interest in mind with teaching them. So if I'm gone for two weeks and they, and I come back and I miss their email for a week, they're not worried about it because they have access to all my learning material and they know that I'm not trying to rip them off and they know that I'm out creating stuff to help them learn in the future. So I think it takes a big mindset shift of, saying, what are the things that I truly enjoy? How can I help people out? And what other things in my life don't I enjoy that much? Well, I'm going to throw out everything that I don't enjoy that much and not do it. So you can you can get design a lifestyle like this, but you have to be very selective in what you choose to do. That was a long answer, but hopefully it kind of cleared some of that up. How do you balance value versus paid content though? Whew. You're, you ask me, man, I'm not an expert. <laughs> Come on now, you're um, the one doing it. So this is something that nobody seems to know the right answer to. And I don't have a good answer for this. What I try to do as far as my paid content. So if you think about the internet and your ability to learn photography, the ability to access knowledge is now free and easy. So you can learn anything you want. The hardest part now is being able to filter all the bad stuff from all the good stuff. So you could spend your whole life trying to learn how to get sharp focus or use hyperfocal distance. You could take the route of watching 100 free YouTube videos, all with different methods for sharp focus. You could test them all. After you test them all, you could go out and try to take that single technique and integrate it into the rest of your workflow for shooting. So I know that that is exist. So my goal as a teacher is to, instead of teaching one technique, 
I teach an entire system for doing something. So when you're doing photography, let's just take camera and shooting, for example, you need a step-by-step technique that's going to say, well, I shouldn't be guessing my shutter speeds, my exposure, all this stuff every time. I need a process to follow. It's kind of like a decision tree. And by following this process, you'll get to the result that you want. The goal is to take all thinking out of the actual camera technique so you can process or you can spend all your creative mind thinking about composition and things that really matter. So I teach people an entire system for learning photography so they don't have to spend their time learning all these free skills from across the internet, learning what works, testing what works, figuring out a bunch of stuff doesn't and then integrating it back into their own technique or camera system. So I kind of remove through my learning process or teaching process, I should say, all that filtering and all that time spent second guessing and wondering if you're doing something the right way. And I just teach people the system that encompasses everything from trip planning, shooting technique, photo editing, backpacking, and everything else. So students that are in my school They learn all the techniques, but they learn how the techniques integrate into the entire system. And that system is what takes you from no photo to a really good photo in the end. So I think that's kind of how I balance it. I teach people on YouTube little chunks of that system, such as skill sets, but I don't teach them the entire system that encompasses everything. Is YouTube still a viable platform for business right now? because it is becoming very saturated. Um, I'm by no means a YouTube expert. I personally, this is, this is just how I do it for my business. So I used to not even run ads on YouTube because I didn't want to have it be calculated into my business model at all for making money. And the only reason I run ads on YouTube right now, meaning ads, you can have an ad show before your video and you make a little bit of money, right? The more views you get, the more money you make. But if you don't turn ads on in your videos, YouTube won't show them to very many people because they want the ads on so they can get more ad revenue, right? So I think if you get millions of views on your videos or even hundreds of thousands, then you might be able to make some money off of YouTube advertising. But the scary part is if you're running a business, YouTube owns your whole business now because if they want to change how much they pay you for each view on the video, then suddenly they can be like, well, we're only going to pay you half of what it used to. And you have no control over it because you've based your whole business off of YouTube. So I use YouTube as a way to help people learn and help them to get to my other free content on my website. And then some of them, of course, are going to want to get into the school and learn the systems and really the high level content. And that's not for everybody. But the goal is to introduce people with the free stuff and show them that it's good. And then you build rapport, you build a relationship. And then if they want the high level stuff and they think it'll help them, then all the free stuff is a great introduction to that. But I would by no means never, I would just never base my business on YouTube ad revenue because you might make a few hundred dollars extra a week or a month or whatever. And that's great. It can help you to build your brand but it's too risky to build a long-term YouTube business. And that's the only thing you have going. It's much more reasonable if you want to help people or teach or do anything photography related is to build a relationship or a community and get those thousand true fans or 500 true fans. Because once you guys have that relationship, then 
you just constantly teach them and you provide value to them and you provide everything that you know to them. And with this relationship, if they just pay you a little bit of money, you have a two-way street where you're both getting a huge benefit. So I always want to provide way more value than the actual cost that I charge people to sign up for my courses because I always want them to feel like they're learning stuff and like I'm not ripping them off because my goal is for people to learn and to be able to make decisions in their life with things that they've learned and get to work on stuff that they really care about. So that's kind of how I look at YouTube. It's not the right way or the wrong way, but it's just one way that you can go about it. You know, Dave, it's, it's so interesting having a podcast and, and talking with so many people because just this morning I was interviewing Ann Belmont, who has a completely different approach to her photographic career than you do. Um, mm-hmm. She's very in touch with like the emotional side. Um, she was a art therapist and uh, is very connected to the experience of photographing, which I'm sure you are too, to a degree, but it seems to me like everything is spun towards lifestyle, what you've chosen, you want your existence to be. Um, and, and you're very unapologetic about that. Yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, and the reason being is because I feel that if I'm not extremely excited about my lifestyle, then I can't possibly have the motivation to teach people at the highest level. You can think about it this way. Like, let's say your buddy comes over and he wants, and you know this, you know about this thing, but you hate doing this thing. Let's say you know about doing taxes and you're an expert at it, but you hate doing it. Your buddy's like, hey man, can you teach me how to do taxes? You're going to be like, yeah, but I'm not really that excited about it. <laughs> Versus what if he came over and asked you, hey, hey David, um, can you teach me, to go out and take a hike and take some photos of some stuff in the the Appalachians where you live, you'd be like, Oh yeah, let's go do it. Like you'd be, you'd be pumped up about doing that. And the fact that you're pumped is going to give you the ability to teach him at a much higher level because you're excited about the process too. So if I don't live a lifestyle that I enjoy, it's going to reflect in everything else I do. And I won't be able to give people that want to learn from me the best experience possible. So I don't really see it hundred percent in the way that I'm just trying to optimize for myself. I also want to create really good learning experiences and be able to shift people's perspectives on thinking. And if I don't believe in the stuff, there's no way that they're going to believe in the stuff because even if I do believe in it, they might not believe in half the stuff I'm saying until I kind of build rapport with them and show them that it works. So that's kind of why I take that method. In terms of kind of the excitement around a way of life. Uh, photography is a full-time career. How do you deal with the waxing and waning excitement flows that kind of come with it, of come with like creating the art or constant creation of content? Because that is just the world we live in as people who do photography full-time. Yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. I think everybody struggles with that. I definitely struggle with it. And the way that I get through that is it kind of goes back to the designing a lifestyle and working on things I'm interested in. So I create a lot of content around photography. Some of it's specific to like actual technique, but sometimes I'll just create other stuff that ranges outside of that. Like this past year, I've started a blog that's separate from my photography website where I just write about the creative process. I write about, uh, what it feels like to be a creator, like techniques you can use to create for your own. 
So I kind of get into other aspects of things that I'm interested in that I can teach people. And by writing it out or by creating videos around it, I actually improve on it myself a lot faster than I would. Anyway, also it's like a, it's like a two way street again. Like I can help people and I'm also learning, but I always try to have all these side projects going and they're kind of like just tests or experiments, right? Like some of them don't go anywhere and I work on it hard for a year and I'll be like, well, I'm not interested in this anymore. But some of them, a lot of people find to be useful and I like it. And then I'll kind of scale that thing up until the next aspect of my life and I'll spend more time on it. So I guess along with having like the content that I'm known for creating, I always try to have these side experiments that can also teach people things that I'm currently interested in and we can kind of work together and they, people that watch the stuff always help me to generate new ideas because they'll have questions and they'll type a question under a video or a blog post and I'll be like, oh man, I never thought of that before. I should try that out. So it's like a, a symbiotic relationship where you have people learning, then you have a teacher or a leader, but the leader is by no means or the teacher is by no means like the know-all they can get a lot of input from the crowd and that's kind of just cycles back and forth. So I always try to work on things that currently interest me. And I also try to work on things that I know can help a lot of other people out and just mix that in a way that it doesn't get boring. Look into the future with me with the internet, because things are always evolving to something different. And it seems like, at least for me, adaptation is, is a constant. What, what do you think's coming up using the internet that photographers should prepare for or that maybe you're just preparing for as as you live your lifestyle yeah awesome question i like the uh i like any question that deals with long-term scale of things and how things will evolve and progress that's a cool one um i think a good question to ask this question kind of stemmed out of engineering design that i learned back at and Bowen and at college, a cool question to ask for anything that you're up to on the internet is what is expensive or hard to access now that will become cheap and easy to access as technology changes. So the technology change could be something like faster internet and faster computer processors, because 10 years ago you could make videos but YouTube wasn't that big yet because people didn't have access to the amount of bandwidth or the speed of computers that were cheap enough that the masses could create video. Phones also weren't great video then, where now you can turn on your phone. If you have enough money to get a phone, you have some good ideas, and you have a microphone, you can do anything you want on YouTube and build a large audience or a website or anything else like that. So when I'm looking at this stuff, I'm trying to see things that are going to become easily, I guess you could say replicated in the future and how I can avoid that replication. Because if you think about a business, if a business doesn't provide value, it goes under, right? So if something can replicate what I'm doing as part of my business, and that thing is really easy to create, say computer artificial intelligence can create landscape photos in the future, well, then stock photography is going to go away, right? I mean, you can look at AI and how it creates realistic humans right now. So things that are corporate and that don't tie themselves to an actual person's persona, a person's way of thinking are going to be easily replicated once you can just outsource this to a machine that makes a video for you, right? An example of this would be like 
let's say you're making all this photography content and it's all about technique, but you don't really show your personality. You don't show people what you're thinking. You don't have creative ways of viewing the world. Well, eventually a computer will just be able to make that and they'll pump it onto YouTube and we will have no idea if it's a person that's real or it's a computer generated artificial being that's teaching you photography. So I think being outspoken in the ways that you think, but not being to the point where you're cocky, but always wanting to help people, but kind of showing your personality is going to be a more and more important thing because people kind of have this evolutionary instinct to want to bond into groups, which can be really detrimental in some ways like politics, but can also be really good in some ways like groups of photographers that want to do something and learn together. And those groups always need a leader. Well, in most cases, they need a leader or somebody to propel the next idea forward so they can always get better at it. So I think being a leader and being able to help people and teach people is going to become more and more important. But anything that's very cut and dry and step-by-step and procedural is probably going to get less and less important over time as computers get faster, as the internet becomes more ubiquitous. I mean, Africa's not really on the internet yet. Some of them are, but once... Once Elon gets Starlink, do you got you know what Starlink is? Uh-huh. Once that's gigabit internet broad, like everywhere on the globe, everything's going to change, right? Because everybody's going to have access to stuff. So ideas are going to spread instantly from one part of the world to the other. So nothing will be held back. So I think the free flow of information is just going to become more and more. And when people access information, And they don't have any filter on it, kind of like I was talking about earlier with it's easy to get access to all the latest camera techniques. You just have to filter through what's good and bad. Well, the same thing's going to happen with information across all realms of humanity. And people are going to need leaders to say, hey, this is the way. That information's bad. This is information's good. Don't just trust me. I'll show you the process and teach you why. And I'll be the leader to show you the path. So I think that thing's going to get important. And if you're out there listening and you have ideas and you want to lead a small group of people, you don't have to think of yourself like this ultimate leader. You just have to think of yourself as I'm willing to put my ego on the line and say, okay, I'm going to be wrong a lot. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm going to fail a lot, but I'm willing to step out there and make those mistakes to lead a group forward. And I think that will be one of the most important things coming now and in the future as internet becomes ubiquitous. Do you have to have an ego to do that? Well, we all got an ego. It's baked into us, but I don't, I'm as far as ego, I mean, like, let's say the the reason a lot of people, including myself, don't create stuff, I think is because they're scared to fail and then they're scared of what they'll look like when they fail. So that's all a function of the ego, right? It doesn't have to mean that you're an egotistical person. Every decision you make to survive is technically made by your ego. So that's what I mean by ego. I don't mean like an egotistical jerk or something like that. Gotcha. Had to clear that up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for clearing it up. Um, I just mean the ability to say, I don't mind if I'm embarrassed because I know I'm going to fail a lot and I know I hardly ever have the right answer. But if I constantly have all these micro failures, that's the only way for me to get feedback on what works and what doesn't. And then I can push forward. And that whole process, you're just putting your ego on the line and saying, well, I don't really care if I look like a loser or if I fail or if my photography is bad because 
it's going to look really bad until I constantly work on it and fail at it until it gets better. So that's kind of what I mean by ego. Where can people go to find more out about you and, and your classes as well and your photography school? Um, I will leave a, a link for you guys. You can go to davemorrowphotography.com. But I also made a special link just for your podcast. And that will have a bunch of free PDFs with my shooting techniques on it. That will have access to a little course that I made that has step-by-step shooting technique and a bunch of other stuff for you guys. So you can go to davemorrowphotography.com backslash podcast, or I'll leave a link in the show notes that you guys can check out. Um, So hopefully that stuff will help you out. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to my rants. Hopefully you got one or two things out of it. I'm not right most of the time, but I'm definitely willing to put myself on the line because I know I'm going to fail a lot. And I know if I fail a lot, I'll eventually get closer to the answer of what is the right thing to do. And I can progress myself forward. So if anybody else is in that boat and they want to learn and improve and fail and constantly improve as well, then come get in touch. Let me know. Be happy to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for coming on and talking with us, Dave. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you providing the platform and you also ask great questions. So hopefully we can hang out again in the future.